Matthew chapter 5 on page 7. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Knowing God's forgiveness, his grace, his undeserved kindness, has a radical, deeply shaping effect on who we are as people. We've said it before, but so often the picture people have of Christianity is the picture of people trying hard to be good so that God will love them. People trying to turn over a new leaf, trying or pretending to be squeaky clean. And Jesus' teaching, once again, is so different from that. And here in his teaching on the Christian life in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that is very, very clear. He's, He's going to talk in the coming chapters about the high standards he calls us to. And they are high. But first, in these verses, he shows us how the true Christian life comes about Firstly, from realizing that we need grace. We need God's forgiveness, his acceptance, his love before anything else. We start by realizing that we need his grace, his undeserved kindness. And a life that really receives that grace begins to change us. It begins to make us people who show that same undeserved kindness to others. Then finally, that will make our lives so different from the world around us that God's grace becomes very visible through us to the world around. So just a brief reminder of what we saw last week. We saw that Jesus is teaching them about the blessed life. Each of these statements begins with the word blessed, the the happy life, the fortunate life, the life that is truly worthwhile. He is teaching them about that kind of life. Now the broader section we're looking at. We're looking at it over three weeks, really. Last week, we saw how disciples need grace in one to six. We'll have a very brief recap of some of that in a moment. Then this week, we'll focus in the middle, uh, 
Disciples live grace out. And then finally, 11 to 16, disciples show grace. Grace, again, that undeserved kindness which God shows to us. So firstly, last week we looked at these verses, uh, starting, blessed are the poor in spirit. I won't spend long on it, but to go forward, we just need to briefly remember the heart of what all of that was about. Jesus is teaching that someone who is truly blessed, truly fortunate, truly, truly happy, is someone who knows their need and dependence on God. Someone who is poor in spirit, first of all. In other words, someone who knows that spiritually they don't have anything to bring to the table. They're coming to God poor. They need him. They're mourning. They're saddened by the evil and the wrong, both in themselves and in the world. Uh, They're meek. They're gentle to other people because they, um, in their poverty and spirit, their mourning, they know that they needed gentleness, and so they give it to others too. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're longing to be made deeply good and longing for the world around them to be made deeply good and to do what they can towards that. And people who are like this, who see their need of God and come to him for that, Jesus says, will find what they need. Firstly, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have a place in God's coming rule. Theirs will be the earth remade. They will be comforted when he comes back. They will inherit the earth. Everything will ultimately be theirs. And they will be filled. They will be satisfied with the deep righteousness that both in themselves and in a changed world. In and through God's kingdom, they will have what they long for. None of it earned. None of it. That is, that, that's central to what he's saying. They know their need and God fills it. This is God's grace, God's goodness to those who don't deserve it. So firstly, the blessed life, the good life, the life of the disciple is a life of knowing our need of God. But that takes us on to our focus for this week. Uh, the disciples live grace out. Because that grace that God shows us flows out in what we do. Um, So these next four Beatitudes um, are about that. They show how we begin to reflect what God is like. We begin to show God's glory, as we were talking about with the kids, as grace works on our hearts and minds. So first of all, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The kinds of awareness of need and need of forgiveness that we have in the first half will lead us to be merciful in the second. Um, mercy here in the, in the Bible includes what we normally think of as mercy, you know, not punishing those who deserve it necessarily, forgiveness instead of revenge. But the idea is much broader than that. It, it includes compassion on those in need, those in trouble, those who just need help. Um, giving to the poor is described as mercy, often in the Bible, for that, for example. Mercy is, the kind, is what disciples show, um, whether it's need for forgiveness, whether it's when we see need for help or for compassion or whatever. It's a recognition God helped us in our need when we were in trouble and we didn't deserve it, and therefore a desire to do exactly the same for other people. And those who do this, those who show people that same mercy and compassion that God showed us, they will be shown mercy. Not as payback, and, and of all the Beatitudes, that, this is the one most easy to read that way, as if it was a kind of payback. But 
repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus will tell parables about this sort of thing. Matthew 18, uh, verse 21 on, if you wanted to check up for yourself, is a good place to start. But there are numerous places in the Gospel where Jesus makes it very clear that the way we show mercy and forgiveness to others is a barometer of how we have received or whether we have received mercy and forgiveness from God. If we forgive, sorry, if we are forgiven, we will forgive. If we know God has let go of and wiped away the things we've done wrong, we can't hold on to the desire for vengeance and punishment of people who have done things to us. We need to pass along the forgiveness we've been shown. Those who have received mercy and demonstrate it by the fact they show it will be shown mercy. They will be shown mercy. They can look forward confident to the reality that they are forgiven. And they needn't worry about fear or guilt. However deeply aware of flaws and weaknesses they might be or of wrongdoing in their heart, they can be confident God will show them mercy. And they can look forward to that rich and endless mercy from God. Next, Jesus goes on to say that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is, if you know your Bible, a little awe-inspiring. All through the Bible, people want to meet face-to-face with God, and they can't. He is too pure, too great. His majesty is overawing and awe-inspiring. And for the evil and the lies and the twisted parts of our hearts, coming into his presence would undo us. It would finish us. Moses almost comes face to face to God. He, he sees a little of him. People like Isaiah have a vision of a likeness of his glory. They don't see the full thing, but it's enough to bring them to their knees. And yet Jesus says here, the pure in heart will see God. Now, who are the pure in heart? I think instinctively we we think of it as the people who are basically truly good. They're hearts with no evil in them at all. Um, The kind that leads us to true goodness from the inside out. And, And certainly Jesus does call us to that. But aside from the fact that none of us do manage that in this life. So this sermon is clearly talking about people who realize that they are not completely pure in their hearts. Uh, the Bible, though, does use uh, the, uh, the words pure in heart in other places, uh, particularly Psalm 24. The pure in heart are those who will come close to God. And they particularly talk about pure in heart as being not lying, not breaking your promises, and a kind of deep honesty that comes from knowing God. A pure heart is one that's not darkened by deceit or lies or hypocrisy or untruth. It's not convoluted, open, it's clear, it's honest, it's straightforward, it's utterly sincere. Now, obviously, we don't manage that either entirely in this life. But I think what it's saying is, again, it flows from what we've seen so far. So often it is tempting to wear a mask, to pretend that we are someone we're not. It's easy to lie, to deceive, to exaggerate, to twist the truth all to make ourselves look better than we are, to protect our egos, to protect our self-image. That is the main reason we are tempted to lie, isn't it? It's the just desire to look better in front of other people. Um, 
even the littlest white lie. You tell it because you don't want other people to think badly of you. Um, when we really, really know that God accepts us as we are, the need to lie in that way suddenly goes away. Now, we might not realize that fully and feel it all the time, but it, it is true. If we are totally accepted by him, regardless of all our failings, from the small, and the failure to set up the computer properly so the hymns don't work, through to the big, then we can drop the pretense. We can stop pretending that we're super competent and capable and never making mistakes and not doing anything wrong. We can face God and we can face others with a new honesty, a new willingness to admit how far short we fall. In other words, we become pure in heart. And it's those who drop that mask in the end who will see their God. Because that vision which burns up all the darkness of deceit, they can see it. They can come face to face with him and know him intimately, deeply, profoundly. Whatever it means to see God who is invisible face to face, they will see him. And you know, you know that's where the Bible ends, isn't it? You know, it's that wonderful vision of God which all his people one day will see. They'll have an intimate face-to-face -face relationship with God himself. That's where the Bible stops, but it's not where Jesus stops here because there's a little bit of time till we get there. Firstly, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Knowing God leads us to act as he does on earth. And one of the main ways that shows is becoming a peacemaker. Because when we know our need, when we become pure in heart with less deceit, less manipulation in us, we're able to work for peace in those around us. We become people who are able to diffuse difficult situations. People who, when you put them in a room with other people, they help others get on rather than adding extra arguments or awkwardness. They add gentleness and meekness and honesty to a situation. We begin to work harder at understanding others, at taking them seriously. And so when there are fallings out or people aren't talking or we're up, they're upset with each other, whether that's in the family or in the church or friends, we do what we can to heal that, to heal that broken situation, to take away the anger and the pain. We want peace. We want reunion. And we begin to work for it. It can be hard, can't it? You know, there's few things where the hardness of a good life comes out than real family disputes. That's where most of our pain in life comes from, isn't it? If we're honest. And any other time we get close to people, like in families, that's exactly where it will come again. That's why you get disputes in church. But people who come from knowing their own need and their own faults and failures and flaws, their own need for God's forgiveness and grace, are the people who then are able to begin, at least, to make peace in those difficult situations. And most of all, to bring peace in the most important situation of all. 
by wanting people to be reconciled to God himself because every single human being has a fractured relationship with God, whether they're full of anger and frustration with him on the one hand or they're just ignoring him on the other. All of us have offended God deeply until we come back to him and acknowledge our need and ask for forgiveness. We have no peace, no real peace. So the true peacemaker wants people to have peace with God and with one another. When you do that, you're called a son of God. Not just that you're his beloved children. You know that? Jesus will, will talk about that. He's going to talk about being a child of God not far on from this section. But also that someone who does this shows the family likeness. They're like a son would in those days. And that's why it's son here and not child. In those days, a son would carry on the dad's family business. Saying, male or female, if you're a peacemaker, you're carrying on God's family business. Because God is the peacemaker. Jesus came to die to make peace between us and God. He sent his son because we were alienated from him. He was putting that right. So he says in Matthew, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He took our punishment. He made a way, however much it cost, for us to have peace with his Father. And so we too, acting as our Father's children, work to make peace for others. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Finally, Jesus comes to Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That one reminds us, solidly, just in case we don't need it, in case we need it, to know that living out this blessed, good, fortunate, excellent life will not lead to an easier life, per se. Not at all. Now, we won't spend too long here because next week touches this again more deeply. But those who follow Jesus, who live out the righteousness that he calls us to, will be persecuted. Not necessarily, that, that can be a whole spectrum from someone in your family doesn't speak to you quite as often, or someone calls you a few names, through to the appalling suffering that we see in places around the world. Many countries, North Korea, China, Iran, and so many others. You'll remember Jesus started the Beatitudes by saying, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the one that knits together both ends. This is, you have a part in what he's doing. You have a part in his future, in his kingdom. If you are poor in spirit, and then he says the same again for those who are persecuted. So why is being persecuted a sign of being part of the kingdom of heaven? Well, simple. Imagine you're a fish. You're swimming with the current. Um, it's easy, natural. Quick flick of the tail and you careen swiftly downstream. But then you turn upstream. The water pushes against you. You have to work hard. If you ever watch salmon trying to jump up a waterfall, it's not easy. <laughs> then they have to take their shot again and again and again. As soon as we begin to live Jesus' way, we are pushing against the current and things will get hard. Remember, Jesus' announcement to everyone is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around. Stop swimming downstream. As it's been said so often, dead fish can swim downstream. It's not difficult to go with the flow. 
But to live in the way Jesus calls us to is to turn around. When you do, you're swimming against the current. And some people will push back. But when you experience that, you know, I'm part of God's kingdom. I'm genuinely living in a way that causes people to get upset with me. Not hopefully because you're being an idiot. Uh, some of us are quite good at that. Uh, or offensive or awkward. But when you're persecuted because of righteousness sake, for doing what Jesus calls you to, with all the grace and the kindness and the meekness and the gentleness and the mercy that he calls you to, and yet still persecuted. Now, next week, we'll begin to look at the way the disciples show that grace in the wider world, how that leads to persecution, but also to them being light and salt in the world at large. But for now, let's pause there a moment and think, these Beatitudes are, as we said, a picture of the truly good life, the blessed life, the happy life, the fortunate life, the life that firstly receives grace, but as we've seen in these next four Beatitudes, a life that is also stamped by grace, that's shaped by glad, thankful appreciation of what God has done for me or you personally. A life died all the way through by awareness that he has forgiven us, he has died to do this for us. And so personal transformation, the, the change into being more and more like him, starts not firstly with our effort, we need that down the road, but simply with knowing deeply what he's done for us. Knowing his mercy, really coming deep down face to face with it. That's why we start so often our services by saying sorry for our sin and thank you for forgiveness. Because the more we come face to face with the reality of his love for us despite what we were, the more we realize the depths of his mercy, the more that mercy will shape who we are. Awareness of what he's done for us is like the food, the food and water of our Christian lives, of our discipleship. It's like the sap in a leaf. That's one of the most important reasons to read the Bible constantly, to, to come to church, to hear grace, because you're hearing again and again what he has done. And when you do, that shapes who you are. You just can't, if you really come face to face, with God's kindness to you. You just can't be hard and cruel and unforgiving. It doesn't make sense anymore. And when we are, it's a sign we haven't come to face to face with what he's done. In a similar way, uh, when we as a church, as a whole church, come face to face with that grace, when we really depend on God's kindness and mercy, it transforms what the community is like. You know, if, if you don't have God's grace at the root of what you are as a community, there are a couple of different ways you can go. You can, you can be a church where everyone pretends everything is all right. We all pretend that we're great and we never make mistakes. Um, we wear a mask all the time and then when shock horror inswalks someone who's actually done something wrong, who is a real and obvious sinner, we make sure they don't feel welcome. We sneer at them or turn them away, or just shocked and horrified. The alternative is a church where you, everything just hangs out. You, it doesn't matter what you do 
just, just come and stay as you are. Now, Jesus does say, come as you are. He says, come as you are to everyone, whatever they have done. But at the same time, he says, come as you are, and then come and be changed. Because God does expect us, as we will see in the next section, to become different, so like salt and light in the world. He calls us to another way. He calls us to be people who, whenever anyone comes into our church, whatever they have done, never to be shocked. You know, if you're shocked by someone, if someone admits something to you that they've done, it's good to be saddened by it, perhaps. It's good to, be, to feel the wrong of it. But if we're shocked and surprised by it, that may well be a sign we haven't plumbed the depths of what we can or could have done. A sign that we haven't realized just how wrong we could have gone without the grace of God. We shouldn't be surprised by human sin, human failures, human evils. Because we too should realize the depth of grace that we need. So instead we welcome people with mercy, with grace, with love, with the kind of mercy that we would like shown to us and an honesty uh, just as we've seen with being pure in heart. So come, let's remember his, his continual goodness and gentleness to us and through that be transformed. Let's pray.